the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Plan Your Estate Radio with your host, San Jose Estate Planning Attorney Bob Bergman. Bob's been practicing law for over 40 years and is certified by the State Bar of California as a legal specialist in estate planning trust and probate law. Bob is here to help you set your house in order with valuable insights you can use today to prepare a better tomorrow for your loved ones. And now your host for Plan Your Estate Radio, Attorney Bob Bergman. Good afternoon, Bay Area. Bob Bergman here, host of Plan Your State Radio, broadcasting from my office in San Jose, California. I thought I would take today and um, switch it up a little bit and spend the show today talking about what kinds of things, what kinds of legal documents and maybe even planning considerations there should be when putting together an estate plan using the revocable living trust as the basis of the estate plan. Now, I am an estate planning attorney. And by that, I mean I'm not a trust lawyer. I don't sell trusts. I don't do trusts. I create estate plans for people. And the estate plans are designed to deal with a whole host of different issues. At the, at the bottom line, estate plans are focused on dealing with uh, um, the avoidance of conservatorship while you're alive, which is basically a guardianship for an adult, uh, much like minor children need to have guardians appointed for them if they lose their parents. Adults may need to have guardians appointed for them to handle their finances and maybe also handle their personal care needs, including their medical care and things like that. Uh, I am an estate planning attorney. I'm board certified by the State Bar Board of Legal Specialization in the area of estate planning, trust, and probate law, which means, uh, like many doctors that are out there that have a specialty in medicine, I am a specialist in law, specifically in estate planning law. Now, there are a series of legal documents that I believe should be part of every estate plan. The most straightforward ones are things like a financial power of attorney, sometimes called a durable power of attorney. Durable means that the authority granted in the power of attorney uh, is intended to be in effect um, if necessary, while you're still capable, but it's also intended to be in effect if you become incapacitated and can no longer handle things for yourself, such as your finances, for example. The holder of a durable power of attorney appointed by the person is called the agent or financial agent or attorney in fact. 
attorney in fact as opposed to attorney at law, which is what I am. And it is, at its basis level, the term attorney refers to an agent. Hence, uh, a financial agent or attorney, in fact, is your agent that you appoint to handle finances for you. Now, what kinds of finances or financial matters does the holder of a durable power of attorney have? Well, first and foremost, the person you name is the one that can actually file tax returns for you, whether they're income tax returns or estate tax returns or any other kind of tax returns that are necessary. The person you name as the agent under a power of attorney may also have the authority to uh, operate a business you have, hiring and firing and uh, Um, possibly even if they have the expertise managing the business for you if you're incapacitated. The person you name typically also has authority to to deal with and withdraw funds from retirement plans that you have, such as IRAs, 401k plans, 403b plans, pension plans, things like that. Essentially, the person named in a financial power of attorney is given broad authority over any asset that you hold in your individual name. That could be a bank account, a brokerage account. Of course, all retirement plans are held that way. That could be real estate. That could be a, a sole proprietorship business that you run. Any number of things that you might have in your individual name. Now, something that um, a lot of people are not aware of is that the authority granted to an agent under a financial power of attorney ceases the moment the principal, that's the person who created the power of attorney and appointed that agent, the moment the principal dies, that authority ends. I have people every now and then calling me up and saying, you know, well, my father died. Uh, uh, I'd like to, to now take care of and handle his bank account and his brokerage account and I have his power of attorney and I will ask did your father have those accounts owned in a trust no then I ask what's the total value of those accounts and if it turns out it's too high then I say you're gonna have to go through probate to take control of those assets but the person says but I have a power of attorney from my father. Yes, and that authority that your father gave you actually ended the the second that your father passed away. That's just how a financial power of attorney works. Now, I'm going to talk later in the show about the um, the living trust and how that works and interacts with a financial power of attorney. But the second legal document that everyone should have is an advanced health care directive. Now, an advanced health care directive deals with medical issues. If you cannot make medical and health care decisions for yourself, then your health care agent, health care agent, not financial, health care agent that you have appointed in an advanced health care directive typically can have the authority to do that for you. 
depending on how broad or how narrow you give that authority, that person may actually have the ability to make medical decisions for you up to and including taking you off of life support if that's in fact what your wishes would have been. Now, that's very, very important to to be aware of because in the absence of someone having the authority to make those medical and healthcare decisions for you, you're left with the situation where the doctors or the hospital may or may not listen to even your spouse um, and maybe less frequently uh, your, your adult children if you actually have um, adult children, they may actually indicate that they need to have authority granted by a court, namely a conservatorship. I talked about that a little while ago. A conservatorship in order to have authority to do things like make medical decisions like an operation, a course of treatment, or taking you off of life support if your wish would have been that you not be kept on life support if there's really no hope of your recovery. The Advanced Healthcare Directive actually consists of two different pieces that in the past were separate legal documents. And when we come back later on, uh, after this first show break, I will explain what the two pieces of the Advanced Healthcare Directive are, uh, what they were historically, and how they have been blended together here in California into one unified document. Unified document, so there's less chance of inconsistencies between the healthcare documents that we used to use in the past. So when we come back to the break, I will explain the two different parts of the Advanced Healthcare Directive and how they interact with each other. This is attorney Bob Bergman. Talk with you after the break. Streaming now on TuneIn.com and the Odyssey app. AM 1220 KDOW. This is Plan Your Estate Radio with San Jose estate planning attorney Bob Bergman on AM 1220 KDOW. Hi, welcome back. Before the break... I was talking about the Advanced Healthcare Directive. The Advanced Healthcare Directive is a form that deals with granting authority to someone that you call your healthcare agent um, in, in order to make medical and healthcare decisions for you, uh, which could include uh, placing you into a care facility, nursing home, if you will, or assisted living, uh, whatever might be appropriate for you. Now, the Advanced Healthcare Directive actually consists of two documents kind of combined into one. One of them is called a healthcare power of attorney. Now, there's that term power of attorney again, which I used in reference to the financial power of attorney. But a healthcare power of attorney is designed to give the power to make medical and healthcare decisions for you to your attorney, your agent, hence healthcare agent. So the healthcare power of attorney has been around for quite some time. Um, and if you have a healthcare power of attorney um, or an advanced healthcare directive, 
basically you don't need to have a conservatorship appointed for you for your person. Uh, conservatorship consists of the conservatorship of the estate, which is the things that you own, and conservatorship of the person, which is your own literal personness, your body, yourself. So if you have a health care power of attorney, that person can make medical and health care decisions for you. But the question then also came up, what happens if you don't have a health care agent to speak for you? Well, then we used to have something called the Directive to Physicians, more popularly known as a living will. Now, as you can imagine, calling a health care document a living will, uh, you can probably see one of the problems that occurs because of that. Anyone see that? Yeah, exactly. If you call it a living will, a lot of people confuse that with living trust. Uh, I regularly have people contacting my office and saying, I think I'd like to have one of those living wills made. I know that they mean living trust, but I always have to clarify that that's in fact what they are asking about. So the directive to physicians or living will is basically, in, in its most basic form, was something to the effect of, if I'm terminally ill, meaning I'm going to die, and there's no hope of recovery, meaning they're not going to be able to make me better, then I request that I be taken off of all life support and be permitted to die. That's basically what a living will says. Well, as you might imagine, if you had a health care power of attorney, it might say something completely different, like do everything possible to keep me alive no matter what. And then you might have a living will that says the exact opposite. <clears throat> and in a case like that, the question becomes, okay, what are the doctors supposed to follow? What the health care agent said? Are they supposed to follow what the living will said? What happens if the health care agent, there is none, but it's very clear from the um, health care power of attorney that the person wanted to be kept alive no matter what. Um, it sometimes would force doctors into the situation of going to the court system to find out just what they're supposed to do with this patient. Uh, to get authority from the court, for example, to take someone off of life support and permit them uh, to die with dignity. Well, in modern terms, we use the Advanced Healthcare Directive. We take both uh, the healthcare power of attorney and the instructions or directive to physician and combine them into one document. Now, the financial power of attorney or durable power of attorney and the Advanced Healthcare Directive are both available readily on the internet as downloadable forms that the legislature here in California has created for the use of the residents of the state. It's what's called the Statutory Form Power of Attorney, Statutory Form Advanced Health Care Directive. Just do a, a Google search under Statutory Form Power of Attorney, Statutory Form Advanced Health Care Directive, and you'll be able to find these forms all over the place. If you want to have something like that prepared right away, because you figure we may need it right away, I would at least suggest finding that, downloading, filling it out, having it signed, 
notarized or witnessed as is appropriate for the form. You can look at the forms to see what they actually require. And then you have something like that in place. Now, that being said, I will make the observation that the statutory forms created by the legislature were intended to try to apply to as many people as possible. Because of that, they may actually have too much power granted or they may not have enough power granted. For example, um, the statutory form durable power of attorney has certain things that are not granted under the law because the legislature thought giving a power like this without people really being aware of the of how powerful it was, we don't want people just kind of signing or initialing something and giving all this power to someone they named as their agent without really fully appreciating just what that power is. So there's certain powers in the um, financial power of attorney, the statutory one, that are not granted. Um, now, the, the form gives you a place to write in additional things that you want, like three lines or something to write in things. Well, how many people would know what additional powers to write in on a form like that unless they were trained in the law or unless they um, they uh, went and talked with somebody like me and then said, oh, I think I'll just write that in. And the problem also is if you just kind of write something in, how do you know that what you wrote in actually, one, makes sense, and two, is uh, clear enough as to what your wishes are that someone can actually act on it. The Advanced Healthcare Directive form uh, is also limited. It, uh, it does not really talk about specific issues in any depth at all. And, uh, and I find sometimes people are very concerned about specific types of medical treatment or um, specific things to do or not do, given what may have happened to them or maybe what they've already gone through in the past. I mean, there are uh, many people, many clients of mine that come in and they have been through a serious medical condition, uh, cancer, stroke, uh, heart attack, things like that. And their their views about their health care can often be very, very different as a result. So what that means is I happen to use custom-drafted powers of attorney, both financial and advanced health care directive. It's part of what I do in my practice. And it goes into a lot more depth that when you're, that once you get, excuse me, than what you're going to get with the statutory forms. So we're coming up on the mid-show break now. When we come back, I will cover a few more documents in the state plan and then tell you all about the Living Trust Agreement. Talk with you on the other side of the break. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio with attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, welcome back. I'm going to talk about a few more legal documents that I typically prepare in an estate plan. Um, there's another healthcare document that I prepare called a HIPAA authorization form. HIPAA, or the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, don't worry, there won't be a quiz, is a medical privacy law 
at the federal level that requires medical providers and anybody that handles pretty much medical information, healthcare and medical information about somebody to um, keep that confidential and only release that information to people who are specifically authorized by the patient under the HIPAA law. Uh, HIPAA deals with documents that are recorded, essentially they're recorded electronically. So example, if you belong to the Kaiser Network or many other medical networks, they keep records typically electronically. California also has the Confidentiality and Medical Information Act, CMIA, which extends protection to physical records, such as uh, doctors or dentists or others that may keep physical files in their office, uh, physical records, taking handwritten notes, things like that. Uh, Very old school, and yet many doctors still do that. Nothing wrong with that. And... um, The medical privacy law means that if someone is not, as I put it, on the party list of a HIPAA authorization, then that provider of the medical information is not legally allowed to provide any information. Now, technically, that includes your spouse and uh, your children, your parents, all kinds of people like that. If they're not on the guest list, they're not supposed to be able to be told what's going on with you. Now, if someone is named as a healthcare agent, they are automatically an authorized person under the HIPAA and SAMIA laws, CMIA laws. Um, but you should also have a HIPAA authorization because you may have people that are not your healthcare agents, but maybe it would be taking over as financial agents or trustees. And we're going to be talking about trustees in a little bit here. And you would want them to be on the list too, because they may need to know what your medical condition is to determine whether or not they're supposed to take over and start handling things for you. Uh, Think about uh, someone you named as your financial agent they heard that something may have happened to you. They go to the hospital. They can't get in to talk with you. They can't talk with the doctors to find out what your condition is. They don't know if they're now in charge because they can't find out if you're incapacitated now. That can be a problem. So the HIPAA authorization form is another important document, something I prepare uh, as part of the planning that I do for my clients. A couple of less important documents, but in some ways uh, maybe very important as well, a certification of trust, which summarizes some important parts of the trust document itself uh, in order to uh, deal with financial institutions such as banks, brokerages, title companies, um, things like that. Instead of providing a copy of the entire trust document, which is a private document, by the way, a certification of trust can be used instead. I also prepare a general assignment of assets to trust ownership. And the general assignment is intended to cover anything that you may own that is not a retirement plan, which cannot really be assigned to a trust, uh, but things like bank accounts, brokerage accounts, uh, personal property, Real estate, um, real estate, even if you've already identified it as being in your trust, 
real estate listed on there. If you own firearms or firearms-related paraphernalia, it may also identify that as a category. Then things like works of art, jewelry, coin and stamp collections, other types of collections. Pretty much a general assignment is important if uh, for some reason in the future you pass away and you have loose assets that are laying around that were not in the trust that you created, a general assignment might be good, solid, written evidence that you intended those assets to be in your trust. Now, I've been talking about trust throughout the show. I've been alluding to trust. What are we talking about? We're talking about the revocable living trust, sometimes called an inter vivos trust, inter vivos, Latin for between the living. Um, a revocable living trust can be set up by an individual for themselves. It can be also set up by a married couple um, as a joint trust. If a couple is unmarried or registered domestic partners, they really need to do separate trusts because there is no way to do a joint trust because of federal tax law. That kind of rears its ugly head and gets in the way of doing a joint trust unless it's with a spouse. Now, a spouse here in California uh, can be opposite sex or same sex. Um, there is no uh, restriction anymore in the law for that. So a uh, gay or lesbian couple can actually set up a revocable living trust, a joint trust, uh, as a married couple, assuming they are actually married um, and not registered domestic partners. Registered, registered domestic partners uh, get the same tax treatment in California, but not at the federal level. And they cannot really do a joint trust uh, very well here in California. I certainly uh, have not prepared them. There may be attorneys that have figured out a way to do that. I'm not one of those attorneys. But uh, certainly uh, those are things that, that uh, need to be considered when you're actually doing planning. Now, a revocable living trust is a different way to own your property. Instead of owning it in your individual names or owning it with a spouse as joint tenants, which is not really a good way for a lot of reasons. I'm not going to cover that today. But a revocable living trust, basically what you do is create an agreement with yourself, if you're an individual, or with your spouse, if you're married, as to how you're going to hold your property together, how it's going to be handled for both of you while you're alive, what's going to happen when you die, or in the case of a couple, when the first one of you dies, and then how is it going to be distributed to the people you want to receive it when you're gone, whether that's your children, grandchildren, your uh, domestic partner, your significant other, or just friends. I do have clients that have done plans where they just want to leave everything to their friends because they're not married, they have no children, and maybe they don't even want to include their own family in the distribution. Um, the thing about the trust is it's private. It's a private agreement. It's not recorded anywhere. It's not filed anywhere. It's not registered with the state or the federal government. It's a private agreement that you make with yourself if you're not married or with your spouse if you're married. 
spouses can also have separate trusts for any property they own that is separate from their marriage. It's possible for a married couple to have a joint trust for what they own together, and each of them have separate living trusts for what they own separate from the marriage, maybe what they brought into the marriage and they decided to keep separate from the marriage, or maybe an inheritance received after the marriage from from one of the spouse's families, and they decide they want to keep it completely separate from the marriage and not mix it into the marriage. Those are all possibilities right there. Now, living trusts, by their nature, can be very, very simple, or they can be very, very complicated. The ones that I prepare would tend towards a higher level of complication because I have a lot of provisions that I put into the trust that I prepare that are designed to deal with situations that could come up in the future. Situations that a very, very simple trust will not address at all. A very common situation I see with older trusts and many trusts prepared by uh, online services and even many local attorneys is that they will have no provisions in them really for what to do if the trustee, that's the person in charge of the trust, if the trustees that you've named, if they're unable or unwilling to serve for some reason. Uh, Many trusts uh, actually are in the situation where where you you actually you've run out of trustees and there's no mechanism in the trust for a new trustee to be appointed. I make sure that I have a lot of alternative ways that a trustee can be appointed for one of the trusts I've created without the ultimate, which is going to court and having a trustee appointed by the court. My goal as an estate planning attorney is as much as possible to keep families out of the probate court system when handling uh, when handling their estates. And that's either while they're alive, um, by having people in place that can handle their finances and their medical and health care needs, and then at death by having a trust. Because a living trust, by its very nature, will avoid the probate process for any assets that are actually held inside that trust document, in the trust ownership. That's because the trust law only recognizes assets in somebody's name or payable to their estate as assets that could be subject to the full probate process in the probate courts. We're coming up on the end of the third segment of our show today. And when we come back, I'll wrap things up with a summary of the various legal documents that I think need to be in an estate plan. So hang on. We have one more segment, and I'll talk with you at the end of the show today. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio. Once again, your host, estate planning trust and probate law specialist, attorney Bob Bergman. I welcome back for the final segment of our show today. So in the show, I've been talking about the kinds of legal documents that I consider to be necessary for a proper estate plan. I talked about the 
the um, financial power of attorney, the durable power of attorney, the advanced health care directive, the HIPAA authorization, the certification of trust, the general assignment, and then the living trust document itself. But the living trust document, it's important, and I find this to be critical, it's important that if you set up a living trust, that you make sure that you fund the trust. That means actually transfer the ownership of appropriate assets into the ownership of the trust itself. The failure to do that can end up with your family having to come to me after the fact and go to court to uh, using what's called a Hegstat petition in order to gather those loose assets into the trust. I see this happen a lot. I do a lot of that court work, probably four or five, maybe six a month that I do uh, because of issues like the, pro the trust not being properly funded. Now, one of the ways you can help, even if you're not using me uh, to do your planning for you and you've got someone else, make sure that your trust references that there's a schedule of assets. Make sure that you list on that schedule of assets everything that you own that you intend to be part of the trust. Uh, make sure it's specific enough to be identified, you know, like the street address of a property, um, the bank account number and what bank it's at, things like that. And then make sure you keep that schedule up to date. I create my schedules so that they can be actually updated by my clients as Microsoft Word documents and then printed out with corrections and changes, dated and signed and put in the binder with their estate plan, with their living trust, so that they can keep a running commentary of what's intended to be owned by the trust. This is important because if you have to go to court to gather in loose assets after someone's died, the court is going to want to see written evidence of the intention that an asset either now or acquired in the future was intended to be part of somebody's trust. Um, that's why I do the general assignment of property. The general assignment of property references various categories of property that are owned now and may be acquired in the future so that you're basically communicating, hey, if I buy a, a new house in the future, if I open a new bank account or brokerage account, if I buy, uh, you know, some, you know, Krugerrands or whatever it is, that I intend those to be owned by my trust. I may neglect to get around to titling the property properly. A lot of people don't title things properly, but you want to make sure that it's listed there. It may even be important that if you um, if you uh, have property that you inherit in the future and you don't take the steps to actually put it into your trust ownership, uh, if it's properly documented, uh, you at least have an argument that can be made to the court. Um, another document that's done at the same time is a special kind of will called a pour-over will. It's called a pour-over will because it will typically have a provision that says, hey, if I have any property that is subject to probate, 
I want it turned over or poured over, if you will, to the trustee of my trust that I established. Some courts will consider a pour-over will to be sufficient evidence of intent, written evidence of intent, to actually turn over assets to somebody's trust, provided there's nobody uh, who would be inheriting that's going to object to that. Um, I like using it as a backstop when I do a Hegstat petition as, oh, and by the way, there's also a pour-over will in case, in case there were any questions. But that's the deal. A properly drafted estate plan, a comprehensive estate plan, is the best way of which I'm aware to avoid the problems of conservatorship, probate, and now loose assets after someone dies. I spend a fair amount of time in court fixing trusts that are broken, trusts that were poorly drafted or incorrectly drafted, or are missing information, or are confusing and make no sense at all, and we need to have the court help us interpret what it says. All those things are things that a well-drafted estate plan can avoid. And that's what I do as an estate planning attorney. I draft well-drafted estate plans. If you'd like to speak with me about doing planning for you and your family, you can go to my website at lawbob.com, L-A-W-B-O-B.com, click on the button to book a call, and you'll be able to book a free consultation with me. That's the best way to do it. That's the fastest way to do it. So we're coming up on the end of the show today. I hope you found it informative and somewhat entertaining. And I look forward to meeting with some of you in the weeks and months to come to help you with your estate planning. This is Attorney Bob Bergman. Have a great weekend and goodbye, Bay Area. You've been listening to Plan Your Estate Radio with estate planning attorney Bob Bergman. For more information on today's program or to schedule a consultation, visit lawbob.com, L-A-W-B-O-B, lawbob.com. Or call his office in San Jose, 408-247-0444. That's 408-247-0444. And be sure to tune in next week for more Plan Your Estate Radio with attorney Bob Bergman. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of this station and are for informational purposes only and should not be construed to be legal, financial, or tax advice. Seek appropriate legal advice regarding your particular situation. Attorney Bob Bergman does not offer any guarantees with regard to the outcome of your legal matter. Prior results in other cases do not guarantee a similar outcome in your case. All rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.